Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, January the 20th, 2023. It is currently 5.08 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. I would like to begin by reading two passages of Scripture. Two passages of Scripture that you would think would be easy to understand. You would think that there wouldn't be any real debate about them, that we could all agree with them, that there would be unity, there would be agreement. It would be just so simple, but the reality is it isn't so simple. Let's begin in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And we have the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye, therefore, and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, we have a very easy to follow pattern there. Go and teach. So you teach individuals. Then you baptize individuals. Then you teach individuals. Seemingly, the first teaching would be evangelism, teaching them the law of God, teaching them that there is a God, that they are a sinner, and that Christ Jesus died for them. Once they believe, then baptism would follow, because obviously you're baptizing those whom you have taught. So it would seem to indicate you're teaching someone, they are believing what you have taught, then they are baptizing to be identified, they are being baptized to identify with that teaching, to demonstrate belief in that teaching, right? Acceptance of that teaching. Then you are teaching them to observe that. In other words, you are discipling them. So it seems to be evangelism, then baptism, then discipleship. That seems to be the basic structure there. Now, I know immediately there's going to be disagreement, but it seems pretty simple. Then we go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and then we read these words, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 40, Acts chapter 2, verse 40, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. There is teaching. They that receive the word are baptized. Seems to follow the same similar pattern. You teach, baptize, then discipleship. Evangelism, baptism, discipleship. It seems to be a very simple and straightforward pattern it seems to make sense. And, and immediately we know that obviously within the Christian life, baptism is something that is there. It's spoken of as once you receive the word, you are to be baptized. It seems baptism is just an understood thing that's a part of the life of a believer. It's a part of the life of the church. 
and you think it should be something beautiful, something unifying, something wonderful, something great. But sadly, sadly, it has become and has been a source of never-ending disagreement, a source of never-ending dispute, a source of fighting and division and church splits and just, it just on and on and on and on and on. And why is that the case? Why is there so much disagreement? Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you talk to, whatever view they hold to when it comes to baptism, guess what they will tell you? The scriptures are absolutely clear. You're supposed to be baptizing your baby. The scriptures are absolutely clear. You baptize that baby for regeneration, for salvation. No, 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 no. You baptize that baby to put the sign of the covenant. It doesn't regenerate them. No, 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 no. You're not to baptize any baby. You're to baptize those who believe. No, 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 no. You're to baptize through sprinkling. No, no, no. You're to baptize through immersion. No, 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 no. And fight, fight, argue, 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 fight, fight. Book after book after book after book written. Sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. And still no agreement. Now, I can't speak for you, but that, that to me just is depressing. It is depressing. It is discouraging. And to make it even worse, to make it just utterly, like, I, just, it, it almost brings me to the point of complete despair, is that we can't even then discuss the history of baptism, the different viewpoints, because we can't even agree on the history People say, well, the early church was 100% unified. This is the way it's supposed to be. And you're like, are you sure? And if you, if you even raise a question, you don't know what you're talking about. You're basically, you're attacked, you're attacked, you're attacked, you're attacked. I talked about what happened to me. Was it last weekend where someone's like, Hey, I would like to discuss baptism with you. And I was like, are you to, to discuss or just try to prove that I'm like, and it, it seemed like it was to be a discussion one-on-one. I go online to where they want to discuss it. I click on join and boom, there's seven people there. And it's like, boom, 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 boom. Attack, 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 attack. Because I'm a Baptist and oh my goodness, they're all Presbyterians or Catholics or Lutherans or whatever they were. And they clearly Presbyterians were present. And it was just like, before it was over, I was told that I was in sin, that I was in sin because I didn't agree with them on baptism. So basically, I, and, and, and I mean, I was so like, just, well, first of all, the whole way I was just, I was ambushed. It was the whole thing was just crazy the way it went down. So, so, but of course, you know, they think that they're all right and that they're godly and, you know, I'm the one in sin. I mean, it was just crazy the way it went down. But once, but it made me just realize, man, this baptism thing, what is the deal? Why, why can't there be any agreement on this? Why does there has to be such disunity and animosity and arrogance and judgment and, and being so condescending. Why is it that, we, that each person can say, it's absolutely clear, is it? And, and the minute you say, well, no Christians agree on it, then immediately you get, oh, well, for 1,500 years, everyone agreed on it until after the Reformation. And then all of these, oh, okay, so for 1,500 years, there was universal agreement on it. And if you even question that, then you'll get treated like, well, maybe you should read a church history, but like that, like you just, there's no even have, it's like, it's a pointless conversation. 
It's just like, have you ever kind of walked up? Maybe maybe you're with a couple, maybe they're dating or they're married, and you kind of walk up and all of a sudden you look at and you realize, uh-oh, uh-oh, there's some there's some tension here. There's some fighting here. There's some, there, and you're just like, okay, um, going this way. I'm just going to walk away right now because it's uncomfortable. Well, whenever I hear people start discussing baptism, I immediately get that. It's uncomfortable. I want nothing to do with it. And you can say, well, that's cowardice. No, it's like, there's, I would, I would have a better chance of accomplishing something valuable with standing in front of a speeding train and just getting hit by it. Something more valuable would probably come from that than getting involved in Christians who want to argue about baptism. Because it, it's just, it's, and they'll say, well, people can't change their mind because you changed your mind because you used to be a little. Oh, yeah, I changed my mind, okay? I didn't come because people were attacking me and having an argument. I changed my mind because I had questions. I wanted to investigate it. I was trying to figure it out. Because I was open to it. If you've already made up your mind and you're just seeking an argument, then clearly you're not worried about changing your mind. But it's a very discouraging thing. And so many issues in church history are very discouraging because this is the go-to answer for so many people. Well, the church fathers say, the church fathers say, the church fathers say. And it's always spoken of as if the church fathers we're in universal agreement, or the church fathers is some kind of authority. So then we will say, well, the church fathers are authority as long as they agree with scripture. And so, but what you really mean is the church fathers are in agreement when they agree with your interpretation of scripture and where you think that they disagree with scripture, then they're wrong. But when they, when you think they agree with scripture, then they have authority. So the roundabout way is you're the authority and everyone who agrees with you has authority and anyone who disagrees with you doesn't have authority based off your interpretation of scripture. Now, when you try to point that out, once again, they're like, how dare you say that? That, oh my goodness. It, again, I'm just going back to the conversation I had. Obviously, I'm still bothered by it, but it just, it just brought up all of these feelings. So I just decided, you know, I wasn't going to deal with it. I was just going to kind of ignore it. We're about an hour ago. I was looking at the curriculum for our Bible study exercise podcast series. We've been looking at discernment and it looks like the word for this week, it's still going to, it still relates to discernment, but we're going to kind of focus on the idea of conviction. And I was like, I wonder what the, the connection is between discernment and conviction, conviction and discernment. And, and, I, and I was going to turn on the microphone and explore that discernment and conviction, and at least probably give someone some homework for this coming week and like trying to figure out the connection between discernment and conviction. So that's what I was going to do. But as I was looking at the curriculum, because the the text for the study this week is in Acts chapter two. So I was, I was looking at the curriculum. And if you hear me uh, tapping on a screen, I'm opening my iPad. And all of a sudden they mentioned Acts 2, like 37 and, and then, or 38, and then further down the verse that I just read. And then it said, uh, baptism in the early church, see pages 118 and following. And so immediately I was like, I, I forgot about discernment. I forgot about conviction. And I, you know, swiped down. And then there it was. Here's an individual. They're standing in the water. There are two individuals. One has his arms kind of crossed across his chest. Another man is standing there. They're both smiling. And obviously, they're, so, someone's getting ready to get baptized. And then underneath that picture, it says, baptism in the early church. And I was like, oh, boy. 
what do I do? What do I do? Now, I was sitting here in my study. And again, I wanted to talk about discernment and conviction. I didn't really even want to deal with baptism. Also, around this same time, I was looking at the current thesis that we're studying in the book, under uh, God's No and God's Yes, Understanding the Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel. And there's this big section here in one of the theses where they're basically saying, hey, the Lutherans have the right view on baptism and everybody else is wrong. Seeing baptism as regenerative, that it regenerates the, the baby sinner, you know, and makes them basically saved, um, kind of giving a Lutheran view. And so I got hit with baptism there. Then I wanted to go to discernment and conviction, but then I get confronted with baptism again. And I'm like, I, I can't, I have to turn on the microphone. Now I know what I'm doing to myself. I know I am setting myself up. I know I'm setting myself up. We're going to end up in a long series on baptism. I, I have a feeling. I feel, I feel that that's why I went ahead and, well, on some of the platforms, you don't see the title yet. But on the other title, on the other uh, platforms, I went ahead and entitled this Baptism in the Early Church Part 1. So I think this is going to turn into a full-blown study on baptism in the early church, but done in a Bible study exercise kind of way. Now, if you followed the Bible study exercise exercises, if you listen to that podcast series, you know what I tend to do is I, I do kind of the teaching like I know or some of the teaching like I don't know. Let's struggle together and I give homework and assignments. So I think we're getting ready to get us ourselves, I'm just assuming you're coming along for the ride, into a lengthy work on the subject of baptism. I think that's what we're getting ready to do. And we're going to do some unique exercises and some unique things. Um, I, I may need someone to help create a chart for me. I think this could be very fascinating, but we're gonna, I'm going to try to approach it in a different way. What do I mean by that? Um, Okay, good. Uh, well, yeah, and that's true. Someone, that's that's another, I didn't even realize this. Someone, because I gave everyone the word study to do on discernment, and someone took that method and did it on baptism. Well, they uh, they just said this in the chat. Sounds like I might be ahead, of, uh, ahead in the homework with my word study, but that's true. They sent that to me, and I'm like, oh, this is really good. It's on baptism. So I got confronted with baptism there. Then I got confronted with baptism and God's word, God's no, uh, God's, uh, God's no, God's yes on law and gospel. I got confronted in baptism with that confrontation that I had. And then I got confronted with baptism here in the, so I got confronted. I've been getting confronted with baptism now for multiple different ways. Now that I'm thinking about it, that's even more odd. Like everywhere I turn around, baptism, 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 baptism. So you know, I, I'm, I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to, I've often said that the, the one thing you know about this podcast is, is it, it, you never, the one thing you know about this podcast is you don't know what's going to happen from day to day to day, because I just allow, I like it to just develop organically. And this is, look, I didn't seek this out. I got confronted with it and everywhere I turn that, that baptism keeps showing up. So, and even in the text that we're supposed to study this week for the, uh, Bible study exercise is Acts 2. Baptism is mentioned twice in the text we're supposed to study. So, so I mean, we're going to get front, confronted with it again. So I, I think we're going to take the theology-central, unique approach to how we do this. Uh, I'm going to find specific exercises, I, and I listen, 
And, and I am going to say this. I know it's going to sound bold. I know it's going to sound blunt. I know it's going to sound mean. I know it's going to sound arrogant. I know that. But I have to do this for my own sanity, all right? Because as soon as I put something out about baptism, I'm everyone's coming out of the woodwork. Church of Christ, boom. Uh, Presbyterians, boom. Everyone. And it's going to be full-blown World War III. Here's the thing. You can send me 900 emails, but if you're not participating in all of what we are doing, I'm not going to engage. I'm just not because it's a waste of time. Now, if you want to go through step by step, every step, I say, okay, this is what we're going to look at now. Okay, this is what we're going to, if you're willing to participate in the steps, then we can have the discussion. But if all you've got, you've already made up your mind, you're just here to go, I'm going to tell that Baptist he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's an idiot because clearly Presbyterians are right. Okay, well then, okay, congratulations. I, I already know you think I'm wrong. Okay, I, Lutherans, I already know you think I'm wrong. Church of Christ, I already know you think I'm wrong. Catholics, I already know you think I'm wrong. Greek Orthodox, I already know you think I'm wrong. I, I already know that. I don't need you to tell me that again. Now, if you want to engage in kind of a study from the ground up, then I think we have an interesting way of approaching this. I think we're going to use church history, and I think we're going to use scripture, and I think we're going to try to present, we're going to try to figure this out. So I'm going to start the article in this episode. I've already got a lot of information here, uh, going from basically 70 AD. Tertullian would be what 200 AD. So somewhere between 70 AD and 200 AD, two very important documents. One clearly from a church father. All right, the Didache, the Didache, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Some, some wanted to argue that it was actual scripture. Of course, it's not in the canon, but the Didache, the Didache, um, I'm going to call it the Didache, I think, um, is, um, I think, I mean, one of the earliest Christian writings that we have. And we've studied it at my church. Okay, again, the people who want to argue me about this stuff act like I don't know what I'm talking about. We, we've studied the Didache. Um, and I think I think that document's very important because it gives some idea of how they thought about baptism. But we're going to use this article as kind of the starting point, and then we're going to just find ourselves going through these specific like Bible study exercises, Bible study exercises, and we're going to work on this. We're going to go slow, uh, but I am going to try to go from the beginning to the end and try to finish this series. And we may review some sermons and who knows. I don't know where it's all going to go. I know I, I didn't want this to enter into a series, but I just don't think there's any way. There's, there's no other way because, because I, I, what I'm about to do now is just going to raise more questions than it's going to present answers. So we're going to work through this. Someone says, oh, this will be awesome. Okay, well, I'm, I hope so. It may be awesome. <laughs> I hope it's awesome for someone. I don't know how awesome it's going to be for me. Uh, obviously, for the people at Victory Baptist Church, be prepared because because a lot of this will take will do as a congregation together. So because uh, there, for our study on law and gospel, I had already decided I have to skip like three or four pages in the book right here on law and gospel because it goes straight into baptism, Lord's Supper, and absolution, uh, the keys of the church. A lot of the, the Lutheran things that really to me don't pertain to law and gospel. But now we'll be able to we may use the book to at least listen to their argument, maybe. We'll, we'll see. But are you ready? All right. The article is called Baptism in the Early Church by Rex D. Butler. 
Rex D. Butler, Baptism in the Early Church. All right, I hope you're ready. I hope this proves to be beneficial. This is just getting us started. And again, the last thing I want, you know, I really wish that, I wish we could agree within Christianity on baptism. I mean, don't you think, don't you wish we could at least agree on that? And I know people are going to say the early church did. We just need to go back to the, did the early church really agree? Did they? Are we sure they agreed? Are we sure? Did they agree maybe from 300 to 50? What about between 70 AD and 300? Was there agreement in that? And if there was a disagreement at any period, and not only that, let's say the early church was in complete agreement. Does that make them right? Is it scripture or now? I, I, and again, this, this, there's just so many issues, so many issues we could get into. But all right, here we go. And I have a, I have a very important. I have well, um, I'll probably I'm going to try try to get a PDF file of two key historical documents. One is called on baptism. The other one's the Didache, the Didache. And I'm going to try to get PDFs of both, and we'll uh, post those in the Discord uh, channel on the Discord server because uh, then people will have access to it. All right, but here we go. Um, I almost kind of want to just stop there and say, here's, there's your preview, but let's just get started. Baptism in the early church. On the day of Pentecost, at the conclusion of his sermon, Peter exhorted his audience, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 2.38. In the aftermath of this invitation, about 3,000 new believers were baptized that day. When the apostles baptized the converts, however, they infused the Jewish ritual with entirely new meanings. Instead of only purifications, which must be repeated, Christian baptism was a one-time ceremony performed in the name of Jesus Christ and representing forgiveness of sins and a reception of the Holy Spirit. Not only did the baptizer invoke the name of Jesus, but the new believer also called upon his name and thus proclaimed the gospel. Now, please note, if you don't hear this, clearly there is a theological bent in the article that I'm reading, because listen to what they said, that they were baptized. It was a one-time ceremony where they were performed in the name of Jesus Christ and representing forgiveness of sins and reception of the Holy Spirit. Remember, there are plenty who say, no, 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 no. Baptism doesn't represent that. Baptism is the cause of it. By being baptized, you're being regenerated. Your your sins are being forgiven. Your sins are being washed away. Something is, it's not symbolizing something. Something is actually happening. Something is actually occurring. Right? So immediately we know that this article is coming at it from a specific uh, theological bent. And we'll have to explore that in greater detail. Now let's continue. Implied in these early baptisms was the idea that the believer is united with Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in the newness of life. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Now immediately we come up with another another problem text, Romans chapter six. There are many who say that has nothing to do with water baptism. 
The word baptism there is just speaking of unity, being immersed into that baptism, that, that we as a Christian, we are united. We are, in a sense, we are in Christ Jesus. This is speaking of our union in him, immersed into him spiritually, that we are connected to him, that it doesn't have to have any, there's no, like, I can't remember which preacher famously famously said, there's not a drop of water in Romans chapter six. While others are like, no, 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 no. That's water baptism. And by water baptism, when I am, when I'm baptized in water, then literally what is happening to me is now I am being united with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So now I die and I'm raised to walk in newness of life. Something is actually happening, something transformative, something regenerative is happening in it. So once again, we have massive disagreements. We have massive disagreements on how to interpret Acts 2.38. We have massive disagreements on how to interpret Romans chapter 6. Now, again, others would argue, but, 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 early church, early church, they're, yeah, right, you want to go to the early church if they agree with your interpretation, but if they disagree with your interpretation on any other passage, then you throw out the early church. So I I, I just want to make sure we understand, pointing to the early church, I, I love looking to the early church to see what they thought, to see what they believed, but you can't point to the early church as a source of authority if there are situations where you throw out their authority because you believe they got the scriptures wrong. Well, if you can throw out this early church because you believe they got a scripture wrong about whatever the case may be, whatever the subject may be, well, then I can throw out the early church whenever I think that they disagree, that they get a scripture wrong based off my interpretation. So either they are a final and obsolete, or a final or an absolute, not obsolete. They are either a final and absolute authority or they're just something interesting to look to to see what they thought that that's your only choices but but and for some people if you even if you when it comes to baptism if you reject the early church like how dare you reject them how dare you reject them what do you think you what are you doing it's like well wait a minute you said that they're only authoritative as long as they agree with scripture well i agree with you and I disagree with their interpretation of scripture when it comes to baptism. So where, where does that leave us? Where, where Either they are the authority or they just simply are interesting and maybe authoritative in helping us understand those times. I just find it funny the way people handle that. But okay, here we go. Every baptism recorded in Acts was conducted in the name of Jesus. And that does seem to be true, that in Acts they were baptized in the name of Jesus. That's what it seems to imply. Now, this is where you get one is Pentecostalism that says you, if you're not baptized in the name of Jesus, you have an invalid baptism. It's not right. It's not correct. Those were uh, oneness Pentecostals were some of the earliest, some of the uh, earliest Christians that I met. Uh, I went to school with a bunch of girls who were oneness Pentecostal. And uh, they got picked on a lot, and I always ended up taking up for them, not because I agreed with the, I wasn't even a Christian, but just because I didn't like people getting picked on because they were different. Uh, so I kind of became semi-friends with them. And uh, after I got saved uh, and became a Christian, then they were telling me, your baptism is not valid because you weren't baptized in the name of Jesus. You weren't baptized in the name of Jesus. It's like having a check that's worth a million dollars, but it's got the wrong signature on it. You got to have the name of Jesus signature on it. It's not, it's not good. So, but, but see, they would point to Acts 
They see, they would go to scripture and go, see, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And you would turn around and go, but, 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 but the great commission, Jesus says to baptize them in the name of the father and son and the Holy Spirit. So which is right, which is right. And then why did the early church only baptize in the name of Jesus? What was going on? What was happening? But once again, it leads to division and confusion and fighting and arguing, and it never ends, right? But my issue with oneness of Pentecostals is, of course, they're going to baptize in the name of Jesus because they don't believe in the Trinity, okay? They don't believe in the Trinity, right? They're non-Trinitarian. They're modalists. They're, 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 they believe in modalism, Sabellianism. All right, so here we go. Every baptism recorded in Acts was conducted in the name of Jesus. Within a few decades, the Trinitarian formula began to be invoked, following the pattern of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The Didache, and I'll spell it D-I-D-A-C-H-E, D-I-D-A-C-H-E, and again, I've been taught Didache, and I've been taught Didache, all right? Uh, Didache maybe is the most correct. I've heard, in fact, let's just do this. I've heard it, I've heard it said so many different ways. Uh, I've heard it so many different ways. And so sometimes when you hear it in different ways, you begin to question, you begin to question your own, uh, well, it's not letting me copy that. Here we go. I've got the, got it right here. You begin to call into question your own uh, way of saying it because you're like, well, wait, that person says it this way. That says it a different way. Um, Let's see here. Um, Let's go with this one. This pronounces it. This gives me all kinds of different ways. Uh, let's see which one we want to go with. Let's go with this one. Didache. Okay, that says Didache. That says this one. Didache. 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 All right. So we have we have a couple of them. Uh, okay. <laughs> Someone says the way James White uh, pronounces it. So I'm going to go with Didache. That's what I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with that. But I think I had a Greek Orthodox uh, tell me, Didache, Didache. Okay, but Didache is the way I'm going with it. All right. So not not that you really care one way or the other, but I just want to be, uh, just make sure that if I, if I get that wrong, because here's the thing, when you start dealing with baptism, if I get one name wrong or say one thing incorrectly, they're going to be like, how dare you talk about baptism? You don't even know how to say Didache. All right. So, all right, here we go. So let's read this again. This is very important. Early, every baptism recorded in Acts was conducted in the name of Jesus. Within a few decades, the Trinitarian formula began to be invoked, following the pattern of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The Didache, a church manual composed at the end of the first century, instructed administrators to baptize three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Didache 7.1. Now, if you've never read the Didache, you need to find a copy of it instantaneously, immediately. You need to have a copy of it. You need to read it. I'm just saying you need to read it. And here's the reason you need to read it. It's one of the earliest Christian writings because everyone will point, hey, this church father said this. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. What did the Didache say? That's the earliest, right? That's the earliest, right? That comes before the, the many of the, the, all the writings of the church fathers. 
The Didache would come before all of them. So the immediate question is, well, what did the Didache say about baptism? Like if you want to argue early church history, the Didache would be the first source to go to, not to any of the church fathers. It would be to to the Didache. And depending on when it was written, according to one source, the Didache was written somewhere between 70 AD and 100 AD. All right? I mean, that's that's a, a very early time period for it. So it, it, it's something that we, we have to have. We just have to have it because, um, because and, and, and I cannot stress this enough. It's something not only do we have to have, you have to read it for yourself, right? Don't trust, don't trust anybody else. Don't trust anybody. Don't trust me. Don't trust this article. Read it for yourself. And as you read it for yourself, this is what you should do. All right. For the purpose of this study, just find everything it says about baptism. That's just ignore everything else. You don't even care about what the Didache says about anything else, how to test if a prophet is true or if a prophet is false. That's an interesting test the Didache has about it. I mean, we could talk all about, there's some, a lot of interesting things, but just take and say, here's what the Didache seems to say and just write it out. Make sure you give the, like the paragraph number, you know, whatever chapter, paragraph number, 7.1, however you want to write it up. And just, and then you just have it for yourself in a notebook. Just buy a notebook for the Didache. And then you just write it down. You can, you can create a document, cut and paste. I don't even care. Usually I say pencil. I don't care. Just have it. Because then the next time someone says, well, the early church said this about baptism, you can say, well, the Didache, I think that would be early church, <laughs> right? I think that would be early church. This is what it said. So I thought you said there was uniformity. I thought everyone agreed. So did everyone agree or did not everyone agree? Now, see, you need to know. Then you don't, you're not at the mercy of preachers or bullies on the internet telling you what you should or shouldn't believe about baptism. See, because sometimes those bullies on the internet think the rest of us are just idiots who've never went to school or ever studied anything. And they can think that and they can say whatever they want about me but I'll help all of us not have to be bullied by people who think that they're more intelligent and arrogant and condescending. We can just go and look at the sources for ourselves. And so you, go, you look at the Didache and you just write out, you know, baptism in the Didache. And then here's what it says. Don't even try to interpret it. Don't even try to interpret it. Don't make it fit into your view on baptism or don't make it go against it. Just what does the Didache say? The end, period. Done. Because I think that's I think that's a, a good way of, of doing so. All right, so here we go. I'm gonna go back. I got all these documents open. All right. Here we go. So I, according to this, this would be one of the things people were, were baptized three times in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three times. The Didache also listed three possible modes of baptism. The use of living or running water was preferred. Okay, what does it mean by living or running water? Does that seem like a river? Seem like a river? Preferably cold, collected in a cistern, and pouring was allowed in arid regions where water would be scarce. They seem to take that from Didache 7, 1 through 3. So it seems to saying that you could pour water, if you were in a place where it was scarce. In other words, you couldn't get down into the water. You could at least pour it over the person. You could pour it over and you would pour it over them three times. 
Now, according to this, clearly immersion was the favored mode of baptism wherever possible. Now, here seems to say immersion was the preferred mode. We'll we'll have to verify some of these things for ourselves. In In its early history, the church began teaching catechism to new believers. The Didache prefaced a prefaced baptismal instruction with the two ways tract. This tract instructed baptismal candidates to live the way of life and to reject the way of death, echoing Jesus' warnings in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Fasting was also an important preparation for baptism. According to the Didache, the candidate, the administrator, and able members of the congregation fasted for a day or two. This is Didache 7.4. Now, I just want you to think about this. If the person baptizing has to fast for a day or two, are you going to take an eight-day-old baby and just have them have no food for one day or two days so they can be baptized? Like, is, is that, is that, I think, Fasting would seem to indicate you're probably not baptizing an infant. I don't know. You can draw your own conclusion. You can draw your own conclusion from that. At the turn of the first century, we find that the New Testament baptism remained basically unchanged in the early church manual. Baptism retained its simplicity. Fast forward a century or so, and baptism transformed into an elaborate ritual full of symbolism. Now, there's an individual that's getting ready to be named here. Let's see. Are you familiar with this name? Okay, hang on. Hang on. I got a close Spreaker. Are you familiar with this name? Are you familiar with this name? Hippolytus. 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 Are you familiar with that name? Hippolytus. All right, well, Hippolytus, let's go back to the article. All right, Hippolytus, here's what happens. So fast forward a century or so, and baptism transformed into an elaborate ritual full of symbolism. The apostolic, tradi- uh, the apostolic tradition and early third century church manual attributed to Hippolytus of Rome included a lengthy description of the baptismal process. So Hippolytus, third century, now it, it seems that it's now become more elaborate. It's been transformed into something simple, into something more. All right. And again, this is from um, um, an elaborate, uh, the apostolic tradition and early third century church manual attributed to Hippolytus of Rome included a lengthy baptism of uh, a lengthy description of the baptismal process. Catechizing now lasted up to three years during which candidates learned God's word and became active and well-doing. Apostolic tradition 20.1. According to Tertullian of Carthage, Easter or Pentecost added solemnity to the occasion, but any Sunday was acceptable. Now, here we go. I want you to get a copy of the Didache, but here's what I definitely want you to have. I want you to have a copy. I'm going to go all the way back up to the top of uh, On Baptism by Tertullian. On Baptism by Tertullian, on baptism by Tertullian, right? On baptism by Tertullian. Now, Tertullian, 
uh, lived uh, between 155 AD and 220 AD. 155 AD to 220 AD. Now, now see what we're doing? We've got the Didache, 70 to 100, and then 155 to 220 is Tertullian. Now we've got very close proximity, two writings, baptism is feet, well, one is on baptism, is all about baptism. The other one, baptism is at least, I won't say it's prominent, but it's featured. And then you can start putting these together. So here's what you would do. The Didache on baptism, what does exactly it say? Then you would put Tertullian on baptism. What exactly does he say? And you would want to just simple simplify uh, Tertullian on baptism to bullet points, just the main key features of Tertullian's view on baptism. So you would have the Didache, you would have Tertullian. Now you should do this because then you don't have to ever listen to another preacher make any claim ever again. You can see it for yourself. Now, I know what you're saying, but wait a minute, wait a minute. We need to know what bat, what the scriptures say. Oh, absolutely. But at first, we can get these historical sources down. Now, according to the article, Tertullian of Carthage said Easter or Pentecost added solemnity to the occasion, but any Sunday was acceptable. So here we have at least Tertullian saying you can baptize on any Sunday. But remember, you had like a, a the Didache was basically you fast a day or two, and then catechism seems to happen after your baptism. But then by the time you get to the op- apostolic tradition of Hippolytus, now it turns into a three-year catechesis period before you get baptized. So you see things were evolving Things were developing. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, think about it. Scripture, you're being baptized almost instantaneously. They received the word, they were baptized. The Didache is, well, we need to fast a day or so before you're baptized. Then Hippolytus comes along and says, three-year catechesis program before you get baptized. Now, I want you to just see, is is that unity? Is that uniformity? Because I will tell the early church all agreed. Well, they didn't agree on a lot of things, right? On Sunday, the candidates prepared for baptism. Now, listen, now, now this we're going to have to verify the historical accuracy of this. On Sunday, the candidates prepared for baptism by removing their clothing. Yes, that's right. They were baptized in the nude. They were not wearing any clothes. Nudity was not a scandalous in a culture where public baths were common. So being baptized nude was not considered scandalous at the time, and it seems to have occurred. Uh, Let's try that in any church right now. Let's try that in any church in America. We do baptisms, and then people are going to be nude. Let's try that. Let's see. Oh, wait, 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 wait. So so the early church got that wrong. Is is that it? Oh, no, 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 no. Now, we need to verify this. We need to verify this. The source they have for this is kind of odd. It seems to come... From um, well, there's a lot of a lot of different people listed here as the author. It seems to come from a book, I guess, Augustine the Bishop. Augustine the Bishop looks like published in 1961, and I guess this is from page 367. But we would need to verify if this is any truth to the fact that the early baptisms 
And I don't know from which year, from which, from which year this would have occurred. And if this was a regional practice or a universal practice, that somehow the, there were people were being baptized in the nude. If we can verify that that's a historical accurate, if we can verify that there is historical support for that practice, then I would love to see, well, wait, well, the early church baptized babies and the early church baptized people in the nude. Are you, is your church doing that? Oh, of course not. All right. So, so the early church was wrong about that, but they were right about, that's what I want you to see. This is why we, you got to, we, now this needs to be verified. I am not stating this as a historical fact. I think I've heard this before, but I, I've also heard this kind of pushed back on. So I don't know about this. We'll have to verify this, all right? Now, it says, usually, uh, baptistries were separated from the church and not in the front of a sanctuary. Symbolically, new Christians emerged from the water of new birth in the same nude condition as their first birth. Furthermore, the newly baptized received a white linen robe, a picture of Paul's admonition to put off the old self and put on the new. In the early church, baptism was a living illustration of the believer being raised in the newness of life. The church continued to practice triple immersion, but added a baptismal creed in the form of three questions. The administrator, the one doing the baptism. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? Do you believe in Christ Jesus, uh, the Son of God? And do you believe in the Holy Spirit? After each question, the candidate responded, I believed and was immersed. This is according to apostolic tradition 21, 12 through 18. Now, hang on. Is this Hippolytus? Because this, if this comes from Hippolytus, because I think he's the one who wrote uh, apostolic tradition. Um, yeah, that was the uh, third century church manual by Hippolytus. We may have to find this. Hang on, let me see here. Apostolic tradition. Yeah, of Hippolytus. Yeah, there it is. The apostolic tradition of Hippolytus. I have it right here. Now, they're saying, okay, I've got it right here. Let me look here. They're claiming. I've got to find this. Give me one second. They are claiming that this comes from 21.4. 21.4. Hang on. No, wait, wait, wait. No, no. I take that back. Uh, this comes from 21.1. Through 23.3, I'm sorry, 21.12 through 18, 21.12 through 18. All right, let me go here. Is there a 21 here? Um, when each of them to be baptized has gone down into the water, the only baptism, only baptizing shall lay hands on each of them asking, do you believe in God, the father almighty? And the one baptizing shall answer, I believe. He shall then baptize each of them once, laying his hands upon each of their heads. Then he shall ask, do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and Virgin Mary, who was Christ crucified under Pontius Pilate and di died and rose on the third day, uh, li uh, third day, living from the dead and ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father? 
uh, and the one shall come to judge the living and the dead. Which each, when each is answered, I believe he shall be baptized the second time. Then he shall be asked, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Basically, the Apostles' Creed, and after each section, they are immersed into water. So one that not only shows immersion, this is a, a, another important document. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have three documents we need. All right, here we go. All right, here's, here's what we need. We need the Didache. We need the Didache. We need the On Baptism by Tertullian. And then number three, we need the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus of Rome, all right? The apostolic tradition of Hippolytus of Rome was composed in approximately 215 in Rome. So we have the Didache, we have Tertullian, and we have the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus, which would put us at 215. We need these three documents. We need these three documents, we need the PDF files of all three documents. And we need to now dedicate ourselves in 2023 to these three historical documents. Then we, when people accuse us of something about baptism, we can say, hey, back off, all right? So what we need is we, we, need, we need basically a chart. Ba- uh, the baptism and the Didache. And we just need to make them very bullet points, right? Very summarized points. The, the baptism... In, uh, in, in On Baptism by Tertullian, or On Baptism by Tertullian, wh- what does it say? And then baptism and the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus, and then write it down. Bullet points. And then we'd have a chart with three, three sources, three historical sources, with summaries of what they teach on baptism. That would be utterly fascinating. It would be, we probably should... I, I, I dare say we should probably turn it into a book is what we should turn it into. Um, it would be a lot of work, but we should really turn it into a book and, and, and at least self-publish and, and get it available for a Kindle or everywhere else. Like, hey, like, this is what the Didache says about baptism. This is what Tertullian said about baptism. And this is what the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus said about baptism. And then we could have an appendix of what scripture says about baptism. And I think that would be very valuable. Now, I'm not saying it's going to change anyone's mind, but I'm sick and tired of being told, well, the church father said this. Here's three historical documents that goes from 70 AD to around 220 AD, 70 AD to 220 AD. And we're not even using scripture at this point. And how much agreement and how much disagreement is there? Well, if the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus is saying that they were immersed and they had to confess belief in the Apostles' Creed, that's not babies, unless you have then a whole radical different... Now, Hippolytus, I'd have to go through all of his writings again to see if he mentions infants. I know Tertullian mentions infants, but Tertullian seems to say that the baptism of children, I don't know if he says infants, children, should be delayed. He believes it should be delayed. If Tertullian believes it should be delayed, well, why? Well, he seems to indicate because it's not necessary. That's a whole can of worms we could get into. All right? So, three sources. The Didache, On Baptism by Tertullian, and the Apostolic Tradition of Hippolytus of Rome. Those are the three sources that we need. Every Christian should have, look, here's the beautiful thing about living in 2023. 
every Christian should have these sources. So what we're going to do is we can get these into PDF format because I don't think I, uh, any of them are copyrighted. All right. All of these should be available for free. We will then, I will I'll turn on the microphone and say, here is a, the P we will, we will attach PDF files to further messages, future messages in this series on the early church and baptism. And we will make them available to everyone and we'll do everything we can. Let, I'm dead serious. If we can put this together in a way, I would really like to see if we could compile it, self-publish it, and, and make it available for, for in a PDF format for free for everyone. If, I wish we could get it formatted for a Kindle and make it available in the Amazon store and I, give it away. I mean, it'd take a lot of work and a lot of time, and I don't know how much money to try to put it all together. But I, because, because I'm sick and tired of everyone acting like that they're experts on the early church on baptism. I'm so sick of the arrogance and the and the just, they're almost like bullies, theological bullies, and I'm sick and tired of it. The average person needs to be able to be like, no, stop listening to people push you around. Here's what the early church actually said. Read it for yourself. You don't need these self-appointed, arrogant, they, they act like they're the Pope. They're not the Pope. Tell them to back off. There we go. Yeah, you can you see, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about this. All right, now I need to kind of finish that paragraph that I was on. All right, I need to kind of finish that paragraph that was on. All right, here we go. Um, it says here, so, uh, so they, were, they were, the church continued to practice triple immersion by added, uh, by, by, but added a baptismal creed in the form of three questions. Uh, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God? And do you believe in the Holy Spirit? To be fair, that's not a complete representation. Basically, they were using the Apostles' Creed. So each part, you would ask them each section of the creed. Do you believe this section of the creed? Yes. Then they would be immersed. Do you believe in this section of the creed? Yes, they would be immersed. Do you believe in this section of the creed? Yes, then they would be immersed. Clearly, they had to give affirmation to a belief in the creed, each section of it, and then they would be immersed. That's not babies. All right. After each question, the candidate responded, I believe and was immersed. This is the apostolic tradition 21, 12 through 18, which I just verified that that is the apostolic tradition from Hippolytus written around 215. The, these questions instructed the new believer in correct orthodoxy and weeded out possible heretics. At the conclusion of the baptismal service, the entire com community prayed together and closed the prayer service with a kiss of peace, signs of, of love, and of welcome into God's family. The new members of the Christian community had their first Lord's Supper, the apostolic tradition, 21, uh, 1 uh, through 23, 3. And I'll stop right there. I'll stop right there. I want to go further. You know what? I'm going to, I'm actually, I'm going to just read the rest of this. I'm just going to read the rest of this uh, because we now have established what we need. We need the Didache. We need on baptism by Tertullian. We need the apostolic tradition by Hippolytus. Those, those are the three sources that we need. Now they go on to say this. Evangelicals may be surprised to read that infant baptism began by Earl, uh, began by early in the third century. Now I will argue, well, no, early in the third century. I think that that's, that's, cor that's correct. 
around 200, Tertullian first uh, mentioned the practice, but he discouraged it on baptism and preferred to postpone it until the age of accountability, which he identified as 14 years of old. Now, immediately, if anyone in the early church mentions an age of accountability, we 100% disagree with that. I reject an age of accountability. So should you. See? So we already disagree with the church. But please note, Tertullian discouraged baptism, the baptism of children. He discouraged it. He wanted it postponed. There you go. Um, and, I've, and I've got Tertullian right here. I can, I can read the, the section. Um, uh, it says, other third, century, other third century early church fathers, such as Origen of Alexandrian, Scipion of Carthage, accepted the practice. Hippolytus instructed and first baptized the little ones if they can speak for themselves. So, so they shall do so. If not, their parents or other relatives shall speak for them. So again, you, you, it almost leads to the children being of a certain age, but here they do, uh, uh, Hippolytus does seem to make an exception if the, if the parents or relatives can speak for them. Even as infant baptism made inroads into the church, though many Christian parents delayed baptism for their offspring, including Basil the Great uh, and his brother Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of uh, Nazanus, John Christentum, Jerome and Augustine, each born in the fourth century. Uh, um, ironically, Augustine, I said Augustine, Augustine, uh, each born in the fourth century. Ironically, Augustine codified the practice and theology of infant baptism by teaching that children were born guilty of Adam's sin and required baptismal cleansing. In the sixth century, when church and state were united, Emperor Justine, Justinian I declared infant baptism mandatory. All right, so they, they are indicating that it was a slow development. And what kind of led to a almost dogmatic assertion that bab- babies had to be baptized was basically a belief in total depravity and that Augustine making, hey, we're born sinners. We got to deal with the sin in this baby. And that's what I've always, I've always asserted that, that the reason infant baptism became so dogmatic was like, hey, not only do we have to baptize, we've got to do something for babies. And this baptism has to be regenerative and has to wash away sin. It's got to do something because th- these babies can't be saved any other way. And if you were living at this time, infant mortality would have been at a high rate. So you're like, babies are dying. What are we going to do? We got to get them saved. Well, let's do baptism. Well, that, that may be a great solution, but is it biblical? Well, then people go, go run to the Bible like, Let's see, let's see, let's see. Oh, Acts 2.38. That's it. That's it. Because the promise is for their children. There you go. There's infant baptism and it washes away their sins. And that, and then the, the, the race is on to find scripture to support it. Uh, during the church's first sixth century, immersion was the expected mode of baptism with the exception of the provision in the Didache. All descriptions of baptisms clearly indicate that the administrator placed his hand on the candidate's head and immersed him or her as a symbol of the new believer's union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, again, many people may strongly disagree with that, but that, uh, I, I, I think so. It says, traveling, I have seen a number of ancient baptistries that prove the practice of immersion in such widespread regions. And then he names all these places he's gone to, uh, from Israel to Rome to Tunisia. 
Uh, and all of these places seem to show immersion. From its inception, the church has observed Jesus' command to baptize, but baptism's rituals and meanings changed through Christianity's first six centuries. For a century or so, baptism retained the simplicity of the New Testament practice. Eventually, the ritual took on layers of symbolism intended to illustrate new believers in initiation into the Christian community. And regrettably, the unbiblical practices of infant baptism and sprinkling replaced the clear biblical teaching of believers' baptism by immersion. This is written by someone who is a professor of church history and patristics at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and New Orleans, Louisiana. So clearly, now, I've heard plenty of people say when you go look at some of these ancient baptistries, you're like, well, look at that thing. That's not just like a place where you just sprinkle some water. They went down into it. Clearly, it was immersion. And others will be like, no, it doesn't matter. And it just, again, no matter what evidence is demonstrated, no matter what evidence is put forth, there's, there's never, it's just never going to stop. But what I want us to do is to take the Didache on baptism by Tertullian, an apostolic tradition by Hippolytus. And I want us to have those three, and I want us to summarize what these three say in regards to baptism. It's all I want us to do. It's all I want us to do. After we have a clear idea of what the Didache says, what Tertullian says, and what Hippolytus says, then we can take our Bibles, go from Genesis to Revelation, and honestly say, if I was to read from Genesis to Revelation, what would I conclude about baptism? Now, whenever a Baptist says that, the Presbyterian is like, because you just don't know how to read and you just don't understand the covenants and you didn't read John Calvin enough. And oh, it's always arrogant, condescending garbage. Uh, that like, you know, because if you don't believe what they believe, and I, and I don't mean that all Presbyterians do this, but just anytime I've had argument, basically it comes down to you're too stupid to understand, which really is offensive, but okay. Or maybe... I just don't see it in the New Testament. And where you infer it, I can immediately argue. I can say, well, yeah, in that case, it, it does seem to speak of household baptisms, but it seems to indicate that the whole house believed. I think in, I think there's five household baptisms mentioned. I think there's five. And I think three of them clearly indicate that everyone believed. So then you're left with two. Well, if, if we're going to just baptize everyone in a house, how does that work? First, you're inferring that there's babies there. I know that Abraham and Sarah, they went a long time before a baby showed up in their household. So just because a household was baptized doesn't mean that an infant is present. And number two, if you go with that logic, if a wife gets saved, does everyone in her household just immediately have to be baptized? Hey, your husband, all of them. Children, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if they believe. We just baptize them anyway. Well, no, 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 no. The adults had to believe, but the babies get baptized even if they can't believe. Well, wait a minute. Why? If everyone else has to believe, then what is the baby? Why wouldn't you require the baby to have to believe? And if the, if you can just put water on a baby and they're regenerated, then why can't I just put sprinkle water on any, all the adults and they are regenerated and become a new creature in Christ positionally and are saved? Why does it only work for a baby? It doesn't work for an adult. Just baptize everyone and they're immediately saved, right? I mean, those are reasonable questions. You say, no, you're being ridiculous. No, I'm not. 
If baptism works, then I can take an infant who has no clue what's going on, no idea, throw some water on it, and it becomes a magic Christian, then I can just start throwing water. I can just sprinkle, just walk by adults and just sprinkle them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and boom, and they all become saved. Well, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. Well, (laughs) there's got to be something consistent here. But we can set aside all of those arguments. We can set aside all of those arguments. And we can do by compiling these three, the Didache on baptism by Tertullian and the apostolic tradition by Hippolytus. That gets us from 70 AD to about 225 AD. That's a pretty good indicator of baptism before Augustine. We know from Augustine net forward, infant baptism is going to become the standard practice. I will agree with that. But why did it take till the 300s? Why would Tertullian, who seems to support the practice, postpone the practice? And, and um, I can let me see if I can find it. Let me see here. I have, I have Tertullian on baptism right here. I have it right here. I think, is it is it 21? Let me see if I can read it for you really quick. I'll just end with this. If I can just read it right here. Um, is it 20? No, it's, is it 20? Let's see here. If I can find it. I can find it. Uh, I think it's 18. Of the, uh, of the persons to whom and the time when baptism is to be administered, chapter 18 of Tertullian on baptism. Um, and uh, it's, it goes on to say here, where is it? Uh, uh, but they whose office it is to know that baptism is not rashly to be administered, Give to everyone who begs you has a reference of its own, appertaining especially to almsgiving. On the contrary, this precept is rather to be looked at carefully. Give not the holy thing to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, Matthew 7, 6. And lay not your hands easily on any, share not another man's sins. If Philip so easily baptized the chamberlain, let us reflect that a manifested and... and Compitious evidence that the Lord deemed him worthy had been interposed, Acts chapter 8. The Spirit had enjoined Philip to proceed to that road. The eunuch himself, too, was not found idle, nor as one who was suddenly seized with an eager desire to be baptized. But after going up to the temple for prayer's sake, being intently engaged on the divine scripture, was thus suitably discovered to whom God had un, uh, who God had unasked sent an apostle which one again, the spirit bade adjoin himself to the Chamberlain's chariot. The scripture which he was reading falls in an opportune, opportunely with his faith. Philip being requested is taken to sit beside him. The Lord pointed out faith lingers not and water needs no waiting for the work is completed. And the apostle snatched away, but Paul too was in fact speedily baptized for Simon. His son. So he's showing that some of these people were baptized immediately, but... These were specific situations where everything was ready. And it says, according to these circumstances and disposition and even age of each individual, the the delay of baptism 
this is from Tertullian, is preferable. Principle, however, is the case of little children. For why is it necessary if baptism itself is not so necessary that the sponsor likewise should be thrust into danger who both themselves who both themselves by reason of mortality may fail to fulfill their promises and may be disappointed by the development of the evil disposition and those for whom they stood. So in other words, they're saying, hey, you could have these people standing there saying, okay, I'm going to stand for this child, but then the child could show to be going in a completely counter direction to what their baptism should indicate. Well, why, why would you let any of this happen? So he's saying, well, well, we should slow down here. We should slow down. And then he goes on to say, the Lord does indeed say, forbid them uh, not to come unto me. Let them come then while they are growing up. Let them come while they are learning, while they are learning whether to come. Let them become Christians when they have become able to know Christ. Why does the innocent period of life hasten to the remission of sins? More caution will be exercised in worldly matters so that one who is not trusted with earthly substance is trusted with divine. Let them know how to ask for salvation that you may seem at least to give to him that ask. For no less cause must be unwedded, but also deferred, and whom the ground of temptation is prepared. Alike in such as never were wedded by means of their maturity, and in the widowed by means of their freedom, until they either marry or else may be more fully strengthened for continence. If any understand the weighty importance of baptism, they will fear its reception more than its delay. Sound faith is secure of salvation. In other words, wait. Wait till they can ask. Wait till they have learned. Wait till they have become a Christian. That seems to be Tertullian's advice. But hey, Tertullian was probably wrong on that, right? Now, when you read that, there's a lot of mixture. Look, when you read the Church Fathers, if you've ever read the Church Fathers, you'll be like, wait, what are they talking about? I... That's insane. That sounds like works. That sounds like Roman Catholicism. And I, the key is we go to the Church Fathers and we want them to be us. Don't go to the Church Fathers to try to make them sound like your team. Let the Church Fathers be who they are. And Tertullian, clearly in this section, is saying, wait, wait, don't baptize. Don't be too much in a hurry. Wait, and especially when it comes to children, because you don't know what's going to happen with them. So if you're like the sponsor standing there where you supposedly have some moral responsibility, you stand there for their baptism and then the kid turns out not caring about anything about God. Well, what is it? What is that? What, what responsibility falls on the one standing there as a sponsor? They would, this almost indicates they, they would feel some kind of guilt or be in trouble. See, this has to be discussed when we talk about this subject. All right, I'm going to go back to the Spreaker app to make sure I haven't missed any questions. I love the fact that we just kind of, this has kind of become an impromptu look at baptism, but it gets us a good start. All right, no, no other questions. So three sources, the Didache on baptism by Tertullian, an apostolic tradition by Hippolytus. Those are your three things we need. We need to gather them and we'll start working on them. We'll start working on them and do the best that we can and see how this develops. And then we'll look at some scriptures. And uh, I don't know. We'll just, we're going to just, we're, we're, we're just, 
I've laid the groundwork. We'll see how we build on it moving forward. All right, you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, thanks for listening. I think this was interesting. I'm excited to see where this goes. I know it's going to be a lot of work, but if we can if we can dedicate ourselves to this, I think when it's all said and done, we can understand the early church's view on baptism prior to 300, three sources, everyone can read the sources for themselves, and it wouldn't, wouldn't it be amazing that everyone who read these three sources, we could all agree on what these sources actually say, but you know what's going to happen? No one's even going to agree on what they actually say. So I'm already prepared for the disappointment, but I think it will be fun. So thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.